just make sure this is starting. Okay. Welcome everybody to class number four. Salt. Of this can happen. Okay. Again, welcome to class number four. We're going to be taking a journey to get together through our history to discover something pretty amazing. I may say so. So let's get started. It's a capital J on JLI. It's a capital J. It's a capital J on JLI. Capital J. So, before we knew that, <clears throat> if I were to ask you, how would you summarize or characterize Jewish history in one word? Huh? That's two words. <laughs> Repeating. Dramatic. Okay, so how about this? Does this image help you? A roller coaster. Given all the ups and downs, it would probably fair to say that especially the spiritual Jewish journey of Jewish people in history has been much like a roller coaster. And in the ups and downs from moments of triumph to ecstasy, coupled with tragedy and agony, you name it, we had it going through the different variations of history. And yet, in the, pre in the previous two lessons, we discussed how things are always getting better. Three lessons, I'm sorry, yes. In the, but in the past two lessons especially, we argued that the world was created for a purpose, and ever since its creation, it's been going through that purpose. With millions and even billions of mitzvahs having been accomplished in this world until now, each one of us making this world a little better, and making this world a better place for our God, and making this world a home for Hashem. Our objective in today's class is to look at how all these spiritual ups and downs that we've experienced in history, there are actually no downs. Meaning, it's not that we take one step forward and two steps backward, or two steps forward and one step backward in all the different steps of history, but actually everything that happened in the events of history, of Jewish history, from a spiritual perspective, have actually been steps forward and all play a necessary role in making this world and bringing this world to its perfect state and in the desired messianic state, the home for Almighty. Think of it this way. You ever see a key? A key that you stick into a door. Is it flat? Is it only ups? But in order for a key to fit the exact door, what do you need? You need it to be meticulously cut there are ups and there are downs. There are grooves, there are some deeper, there are some smaller. But in order for that key to meticulously object to, to achieve the objective of what the key is, to open up the lock, what you need is to have those grooves, those ups and downs, to be able to fit it in. Today we're going to see that with our spiritual history, these ups and downs, they are carefully and meticulously guided by Almighty God, that we should be able to have these ups and downs to open up the lock and bring about the ultimate redemption and find the destiny and the purpose of creation. But in order to do that, we need to now view things from a whole new perspective. 
we have to put on a different pair of glasses and we have to start questioning the events in history more than we have taken them to seem what they are on the surface and dig a little deeper into seeing what truly are these events in history that unfold in front of us. So what we're going to do today, in order to redefine our history, we need first need to define our purpose. And let's go back again to what the reason and purpose why God put us here on this world. Why did he create this universe to begin with? And we've mentioned this quote numerous times from the Medrash Tanchuma. And the Medrash says as follows in text number 1, page 139. When the Holy One, blessed be he, created the universe, he desired to have a home in the lowest realm. The purpose of creation is expressed in the Talmud, in the Medrash, in the philosophy, in Kabbalah, is the purpose that God created this world is because God had a craving. He desired a home. Where did he desire a home? In the lowest realms. This quote gives us three criterias, three core principles of what it means to create a home what it means to be able to have a home. A home, by definition, needs, and over here what the Talmud tells us and what the Medrash has explained to us, there are three criterias. Number one, God wants a home. Number two, where does the home have to be? On earth, in the lowest of place. So number one, it needs to be in the lowest place. What does it mean lowest? We didn't talk about lowest as we explained in previous class. It's not in a spatial term. Lowest means irrelevance and in its concept of transparency, of lack of concealment of godliness. Meaning a place where godliness is revealed. Lowest is the place where there's the greatest concealment of God. Number two, it has to be a home. What is a home? Their medrash uses a terminology, not an abode, not a tent, not a resting place, but a home. What is a home? A home is not just a place where a person inhabits. You can do that in your office. You go to the supermarket. You can go to a park. A home is a qualitatively different place. Text number two. The home, the emphasis on transforming this material world specifically into a home for God, informs us that the ultimate goal is for godliness to be revealed here in the tangible reality of this world to the extent that naturalness that is analogs to the way a person when found within his or her home. When we take a stroll or pay a visit to a friend, we are forced to limit our self-expression to the degree that is appropriate for our present location. By contrast, when we are in our own home, we can be ourselves openly and to our fullest extent. Similarly, the revelation of godliness must be overt and with full of expression, for God desired a home in the lowest realm. Furthermore, Jewish law insists that we must not view a king while he's without his clothing, but that would undermine respect for the monarchy. Despite that, when he is in his own home, there are specific instances in which the king will indeed be without clothing. Similarly, the ultimate purpose for God's desire to transform our material reality into a home, specifically is that, as the Rabbi Shneer Zalman of Liadi explains in Tanya, God longs to finally reveal and express himself without any garment. Meaning, God conveyed his, this desire to us through a prophecy regarding the future redemption, 
at which point the goal of establishing a dwelling for God in the material reality will have been achieved. No longer will your teacher guard himself, which means, per the commentary, that he will no longer conceal himself from you in a robe or garment. What is a home? By definition, a home is a place where a person is absolutely revealed. He is free. He is liberated. There's no constraint. There's no inhibition. There's no conforming. There's no covering up. A person is fully present and comfortable. The essence of the individual is, relieved, is revealed. So number one, God wants his home in the lowest place, and he wants it in a place, he wants a home, where everything is revealed, no holds bar. He's absolutely comfortable. The essence of God is to be revealed in this world, present and comfortable. Number three, who achieves the goal? How does it happen? God is not looking to impose himself on us. God is not looking to make himself present. He wants us to create that presence. He wants us to build that home, to bring that place and make that place comfortable for divine. Text number three. God's intention. This is again from a, this is from a quote from a talk of the Rebbe. God's intention in having a home in the lowest realm is for the lowest realm to become a home for God. On its own terms, for that reason, a home must be achieved through the efforts of the human being. The souls of Israel in corporal bodies, for only then are the lowest realms themselves deformed into a home for God. By contrast, if the home would impose through a transformative revelation from above, the lowest realms themselves would not be on their own terms a home for God. So God wishes for our own choosing, through our own efforts, and our actions to make this world into a place where God feels at home. So to summarize, if you look in the um, number three there, you have, now it figured up point four one on page 143. To summarize, we have three points here. Number one, to be present in the lowest worlds. Number two, to be fully at home in the lowest worlds. And number three, it should be done by us. In simple words, in simple words, God wants us to be driven by our own initiative. He doesn't want to spoon feed us. He wants us to figure it out. Come to understanding, come to appreciation, to be able to make a place which is conducive for not just an outside figure, but for God's very essence. Critically, is that we have all three components. All of these principles need to be together. Therefore, if I have a higher realm where God feels comfortable, but it's not where we are, and it's not in the lowest world, it hasn't achieved the goal. If it's in the lowest world, but God superimposed himself in here, it still hasn't achieved the goal. If it's in the lower world, where we may have done it, but it's not God's essence, we still haven't achieved the goal. We need to have all three core principles, all three objectives accomplished in order to bring about the desire that God wanted, which is that in the lowest worlds, we should have godliness. So now what we understand what the core idea is, what God's purpose in the creation, right? We hope so. We have some insight into what the history is all about and to what the spiritual ups and downs in history. We now just need to take that information and apply it to the historical facts that happened. And this is what we're going to do today in today's lesson. 
go through some historical facts and see how they are part of this fabric that these ups and downs are creating this beautiful home. Now, it would take a lot more time to go through every single part of history. So what we're going to do today is we're going to take four main core events that change dramatically Jewish history in a spiritual sense and look at those and we're going to understand just from those how they're going to go about. And here are the four episodes that we're going to look at today. Episode number one is going to be the sin of the tree of knowledge, the garden of Eden and the tree of knowledge. Episode number two is going to be Abraham's monotheistic revolution followed by the Egyptian slavery. Episode three that we're going to look at today is the Exodus, the revelation of Mount Sinai followed by the sin of the golden calf. And finally, episode number four we're going to look at today is the building of the tabernacle followed by the two holy temples and ultimately its destruction and the exile that we're currently in. So those are our four characters, our four acts in history that we're going to analyze today, looking at their ups and downs and how they're all part of the fabric of creation. So let's start from the most spiritual and holy place that the world was at, at the beginning of creation. What did God do at the beginning of creation? He placed Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, a beautiful paradise, beautiful garden. It was beautiful physically and spiritually. Text number four. God planted in the eastern side of the Eden, and he placed their man who he had formed. God caused to sprout from the ground every tree and was pleasant to see, to good and to eat. So we see it was a physically beautiful place. And it was also spiritually a beautiful place. As we see in Songs of Songs, the Medrash tells us, I've come to my garden. The verse does not speak of a garden, gan in Hebrew, but rather my garden, for the sake of implying Genuni, my marital home, the location of the original served by my primary residence, for was not God's primary residence originally located within the lowest realm. Such was the world in the beginning. It was a place of beautiful, physical, spiritual pleasure. Nothing was missing. The Garden of Eden, you want to call it, was the perfect world inhabited by God, who then he placed Adam and Eve there. So if God wanted a home, seemingly you would say, boom, he got it. The Garden of Eden was beautiful physically and spiritually. But based on our clarification that we mentioned before, what was missing here? Huh? Number one, our achievement. God wants a home for his essence. Was it low enough? Probably, I mean, it was a spiritual place, paradise created by God. Doesn't seem like such a low place. Number two, the world wasn't a home then for God's essence. Garden of Eden maybe was in sync with God's purpose and reason for creating the universe. But was it the purpose? No. It wasn't there. The essence of God, you can't say, was there. And we'll get a better understanding of what that means as we continue to unfold the story. Number three, and more importantly, as you mentioned, the world didn't embrace it. God put it here. It was planted here. So if we look clearly 
Though paradise, Garden of Eden, was a beautiful place physically and spiritually, it falls short from being a place where God wanted it to be. So what happens next? Garden of Eden, you may ask the question, and I asked the question myself, then why did God even create it? Why even make Garden of Eden? Nobody asked him to do it. If that wasn't the purpose, he was creating the universe, why make the Garden of Eden? He put in the snake, as we're going to get to in a moment. He put in the snake in a moment, we'll get to that. But why create the Garden of Eden if it wasn't the purpose of creation? It's a beautiful place, but why make it? It was a boring. If it's the old, if it's beautifully physical and spiritual, then it wasn't boring. Yeah, but there was nothing to admire him. No one to admire him. No. Adam and Eve. Why? If they wouldn't sin, they would have stayed there, and everything would happen there. So what's the reason? Because he created it, even though that wasn't the ultimate purpose. But this was actually, you know, how you make like a template. You have a view of what something's going to be. That means when the world reaches to its purpose, what is a world of absolute harmony, physical and spiritual, look like? He made the Garden of Eden to show, you know, this is what the world could look like. But that's not the purpose right now. The purpose is that you got to make it look like it. Of course I can make it look like it because I'm God. But now you, the people, have to make the world create this sync, this harmony, this beauty. But what happens now? So God want, knows... God has sees, you know, imagine you go to a sightseeing and you can stand from very far and you can look at the view or you can look at it, you're going to go to uh, pick any place. The greatest wonder of the world. You can look at it on your phone from Google Images or you can move your phone away and actually see the place. Which one would you do? Actually see the place. When you see the Garden of Eden, it's only the template. But when you go to it and you want to actually see it, the Garden of Eden needed to be cleared away so to speak, so they can see the real thing. And what's the real thing? It's bringing this world to the harmony of physical and spiritual through our own efforts. And here comes the sin of the tree of knowledge. The sin of the tree of knowledge, of good and evil, that if there was ever an action that God wanted to destroy, distort, and blow up the entire Garden of Eden, you got it. Snake come in, convince Eve to eat from the tree, they did a sin. Boom! They're exiled from the tree garden of Eden. It has no significance anymore to them. Adam and Eve are exiled, defiance, destroyed what was. But why? To build something what can be. Look what it says in text number 6a. Adam and Eve. God expelled from Garden of Eden. He sent Adam to work with the earth whence where he had been taken. Text number 6b. The deeper spiritual reason for Adam's eviction from the Garden of Eden was because of God's ultimate goal for creation is that he should have a home in the lowest realm. The goal demands that God's home be fashioned A, within the realm that is absolute the lowest and B, using the natural materiality of the lowest world. Adam was therefore dispatched from the Garden of Eden. What does the verse tell us? To work the earth. What does that mean? To make the earth's physical dimension a space of receptive to divine revelation. This way, A, even the lowest plane of reality that lacked the spirituality of the Garden of Eden will become home for God. And B, the divine home will be fashioned from the reality of material existence. So true 
The sin of the tree of knowledge was divine defiance. But what did that divine defiance do? We were plunged into a world of desecration, but at the same time, it was necessary to step forward and to be able to bring about the purpose of God's creation. So it's radical. Look at that. They do this terrible sin. You think the terrible sin, they should be reprimanded, but in essence, what were they doing? They were clearing. They were the demolition to be able to build something new. The sin of the tree of knowledge was humanity's expulsion from paradise. No longer would they be sitting in this beautiful, cosmic, physical, and spiritual beauty. But now what do they do? Man goes in. What does God tell Adam and Eve? They have to start with the challenges. They're going to have to work hard. There's going to be labor pain. You're going to have to deal with the world. But what does it mean dealing with the world? It's a step forward. Taking the world, ultimately coming to the purpose of why God created the world, taking the physical, materialistic world and making it into something holy. So what we see now is that the world is objectively low. It's not being blinded by this beautiful light that's in the Garden of Eden. When Adam and Eve were in the Garden of Eden, what did they know? Did they know that they were naked? Not at all. Only after they ate from the Tree of Knowledge do they turn to each other and say, look, we're naked. Why didn't they see it beforehand? Because they were blinded by the spiritual light. They didn't even realize it's a low world. So what's the first step in order to create a home in the low world? Identify it's a low world. Kick them out of the Garden of Eden. Recognize you're in a low world. There's no divine light protecting you. Now you can start your mission. Now, although the world began in this picture-perfect status of Gan Eden, of the Garden of Eden, but it was actually through the sin of Adam and Eve that the stage was truly set to create the purpose of creation. So now we see how we're already looking at things from a different lens. We see that the first up, the up and down, the paradise made and paradise lost, was not a step backward, but was actually a step forward into making this world and fulfilling the world in a godly purpose. So, okay, so now, therefore, if you want to check our list over here, the Garden of Eden, did it fulfill God's purpose? Absolutely not. Why? Because it's not in the lower realm. Was it God's essence? Also not. Was it built by us? Also not. So, therefore, what did we need? Comes the sin of the tree of knowledge, and tries to repair and bring the world. So let's continue moving on in history with our next spiritual milestone. Post-sin, now this world is prime and ready. It's at its lowest level you can imagine. <coughs> Spirituality, it's a low and distant. The generations from Adam to Noah were disastrous to the extent that God had to bring the flood on the world, right? The world hit Bottom low, objectively low. Nobody's going to say there's any distant place more far than this physical world in godliness. Idol worship, it was steeped in idolatry, jealousy, thievery, you name it. Murder. God was absent from any way of mankind. Completely. And at this point, you can say there was probably no garden in any shape or form close to any reality. All of a sudden... Enter Abraham. What is Abraham? And here is how Maimonides describes Abraham's discovery. Fascinating. And how he tries to educate the world. Text number seven. It's a little long, but it's uh, followed closely. 
After his mighty personage, Abraham was weaned, he began to ponder deeply. There he was, a young child, he began to contemplate by day and by night. He had no teacher, nor was there anyone to inform him. Rather, he was mired in the Orkazdan population of foolish idolaters. His father, mother, and all people around him worshipped idols. He would worship along with them, but his heart was busy analyzing everything, and he gained a clear understanding. Ultimately, he arrived at the true way and understood the path of righteousness through his accurate comprehension. He realized that there was one God, that he created everything, and that there is no other God among all the exits. Abraham was 40 years old when he became fully aware of his creator. He then used his recognition and knowledge of the creator to formulate presentations for the population of Orkazdim, to debate them and informing them that they were not following the true path. When he won them over with the strength of his arguments, the king desired to execute him. His life was speared through a miracle and he relocated to Haran. He then began a public campaign loudly proclaiming to all of humanity and informing them and informing them that in all of the universe there is only one but one God and that to him alone it is appropriate to worship. He traveled to publicize his message everywhere, rallying people in city after city, kingdom after kingdom until he arrived in the land of Canaan. At every location he proclaimed God's existence and it is stated, Abraham proclaimed there in the name of the eternal God. When the people would rally to him, question him regarding his statements, he would explain to each individual according to their understanding until he had brought that individual back to the true path. Eventually, thousands of myriads have rallied around him. Abraham, they are the folk that are referred to in the Torah as the people of the house of Abraham, in whose hearts he firmly planted the fundamental principle. What did Abraham do? Abraham went around preaching monotheism. He discovered something, and he believed, I'm not going to keep the secret to myself. I'm going to go around and teach the people of the world that there's a creator. There's one single designer and architect who built and created this entire universe and who made this world with a purpose, and a purpose that God wishes that we know him. So Abraham began telling the world of God, this world, he proclaimed, was not a wild jungle. Everything here, it has beautiful gardens, it has beautiful forests. It's a place where he and only he sees nature, sees what's there. What did Abraham achieve? Abraham was living in a time of absolute spiritual darkness. The idolatry was prevalent in every single place and every single angle. His own father owned an idol shop. And what did Abraham do? He was able to make incredible progress in teaching the world about monotheism. But with Abraham, yes? Because they didn't te- the acceptance of Jews only came only by Egypt, when God chose Abraham's descendants, not the people that he taught. Even Eliezer, his own servant, wasn't considered Jewish, therefore Eliezer couldn't marry his daughter Rebekah. So whatever happened to all those other people? There's many other monotheistic believers, and a non-Jew also has to believe in monotheism, so it doesn't negate he taught all of humanity that monotheism. Yeah, because he's scared of Canaan. His son. His son. Before. I mean, Mary, I mean, Eliezer's daughter to marry uh, Yitzchak. Yeah. 
Religions came later on. We're not talking the concept of the Jewish people or the birth of the Jewish nation only came at the Exodus of Egypt. That God promised Abraham that his descendants, and even not all his descendants, only Isaac, not Ishmael, only Jacob, not Asaph. So the concept of monotheism was not only it's not only regulated to Jewish people. Every even non-Jews, part of the seven Orochide laws, have to believe in monotheism. And one God. So when we talk about Abraham living in such a great darkness, he made the world, as you want to call it, more hospitable to God. He got the world to understand and appreciate godliness. And eventually, hopefully, to evolve that the world should become a home for God. Abraham's work continued with his son Yitzchak. Yitzchak continued with his son Yaakov, and they shared the same vision and commitment to teaching the world about monotheism and godliness. Who is the creator, the conductor of the universe? Now the question over here is, with the patriarch's progress, did they accomplish in making this world a home for God? Did they do what the purpose of the God was about? So notwithstanding their progress and what they have done, they still have not yet envisioned what God's vision was. Why? Because what was Abraham's teaching to the world? Though he taught them about monotheism, but what level of godliness did he teach them? He taught them that God is our creator. That means that he taught them that God is the creator of the heaven and earth. Don't think it's the sun, it's the moon, it's your idol, whatever it may be. There's one entity that created this whole entire place. The jungle, the garden, the beauty, the not so nice. That means their identity, their knowledge of God or the presence of God in this world was limited to knowing God as the creator. Nothing more. If you recall, what was one of the criterias that we mentioned in the beginning of the class to making this home for God is that the essence of God has to be revealed. Saying that God is the creator is only describing one attribute of God. That's not his essence. It's like when you say, what does a child see in their parent? The one who reads me the story, the one who gives me food, the one who pays for my clothing or pays for my schooling, whatever it is. Do they see the entire essence of the parent as a human being who has all these attributes? Generally, you see people or you acknowledge people for what they have in relationship to you, but not in for the entire picture. Similarly, when we talk about God, there's two ways that we can perceive God. I can perceive God for in the context, the creator of heaven and earth, or I can perceive God the way he is in his essence, which then he is the creator, he is everything, not just the creator of heaven and earth. The first perspective, just the creator, is a very immature, incomplete definition of how we see God. It's limited to my capable understanding. I live in the heaven and earth. I live in this materialistic world. And God created it. So therefore, I attribute my greatness to him. But that means I'm limiting God. He's so great only because he created the heaven and the earth. God is greater than that. The essence of God is not just limited by the definition of his creation. Let's see it in text number 8. This is brought from the, from the first Chabad Rebbe in the Torah or in the discourse he says as follows 
An intimate form of creation sustaining divinity, referred to as mamali, breathes within each item of the existence. Far beyond that, a highly intense and abstract form of divinity, referred to as sovev, encompassing the universe, uniformly envelopes all of existence. God himself, the essence is utterly beyond the entire concept of the universe. We cannot possibly refer to God himself as a pervading existence or even encompassing it. The fact that the universe is brought into existence and is actively sustained by God's divinity is not a primary feature of God himself. Rather, we recite in our daily prayers, you are before the creation of the universe, you are since the creation of the universe, with no change whatsoever. They used to say a story that once this fellow walked into the synagogue of the Baal Shem Tev, and he walks in and he goes, God is great, God is wonderful, God is the giver, God is the sustainer, he is the creator, he is the... Uh. And after he finished his seven adjectives that he knew, the Baal Shem Tev goes, that's it? What do you mean that's it? Isn't that great? So you're only limiting God based on your vocabulary. Based on what you know adjectives. He wasn't limiting God based on his adjectives. He was limiting God based on what he understood about God. Or it's like the famous line that once come, came to the Kutzker. The Kutzker, he was a very witty Hasidic guy. And his heretic walks to him and says, I don't believe in God. So he says, the God that you don't believe in, I also don't believe in. Because what was he, the God that he believed in, that he was saying he doesn't believe in, was a very limited scope of what he thought God was. Whether it was a creator, whether it was a healer, whatever he needed at the time. That's not what God is. That's limiting to what you need from God. But the essence of God is so much greater. So this helps us understand that the limitation what the patriarchs were teaching to the world at the time was only the limitation to teach the people that there's a creator beyond these idols. And it's not these idols. But what God truly is, the essence, they didn't discuss. So even with the incredible effort that the patriarchs have done and with all the traveling that Abraham have changed and brought the world to understand and appreciate monotheism all that was just in the creator something drastic had to happen to change it so just teaching the world about the creator has not yet brought us to our mission has not yet brought the divine essence of God of what the purpose of the creation is into this world so what do we need to get to next? What's the next dramatic event that happens in history? Is the period of the Egyptian slavery. It was painful, 210 years of painful times, yet it played a pivotal role in advancing the fulfillment of the purpose of the godly creation. How, do we, how does this happen? How does this work? And to understand this, we need to go into a moment and talk about the concept of growth. Growth or change. Growth. Anything to grow or to change. And you know the very famous saying, no pain, no gain. And the more radical the pain, the more radical the gain. Why is that? Why does something have to be painful to gain? And the answer is that by definition, to abandon something that was in order to make, some, to make room for something that will be. For example, if you're going to retain what you have and expect to change, it's not going to change. It's just going to continue. 
And it's just going to be a different version of what was. In order to actually appreciate something new, you have to completely get rid of what was to be able to have one new thing. Give you a little example. There's a story told of Reb Zeira. Reb Zeira is a Babylonian Talmudic scholar. And he emigrated from Babylonia to the land of Israel. The Talmud tells us that he fasted a hundred fasts to forget the entire Babylonian Talmud. Why? Because if he wanted to start a track of the Jerusalem Talmud, which was a completely different way of thinking, he had to completely discard his way of thinking from before in order to be able to understand his way of thinking currently. I was once listening to a fellow who was teaching about how he memorized hours of talks with the Lubavitcher Rebbe. He said he had to, if he began, while he was memorizing something, to try to understand it, he wouldn't memorize it. He had to completely discard any information to be able to retain new information. The same thing you also find in different Talmudic texts or in general. If you want to be able to bring somebody a fresh idea, you need to totally knock the idea, bring us thousands of questions on it, and only then introduce the new idea. Why? Because as long as you have the old idea, this new idea is not new, it's just a different involvement of the previous idea. In order for something to change, in the language of Kabbalah and Hasidism it's called, every yesh, Every new existence needs a ayin, needs a nothing in the middle to create a new yesh. For example, I'll give you another example. You want to have a new idea. You want to come up with an out-of-the-box idea. You have to totally discard any way of thinking beforehand to be able to create a new idea. Einstein was able to come up with this theory because he challenged, he said, what my teachers told me is nonsense. And he was almost thrown out of university because of it. Right? Well, and the same thing is also with any type of theory that came up that revolutionary, there was because we didn't follow the curve before, we said whatever was before is nonsense, sometimes even stronger words, in order to be able to come up with something new. And this is true in every level of existence. A seed has to disintegrate in the ground in order to become a new seed. A caterpillar must cease to, it must cease to exist for it to be a butterfly to come out from its cocoon. And every single idea, in order for it to be realized, has to change from what it was. The same ideas when we come and talk about the Egyptian slavery. Take the Egyptian slavery. Jacob and his family immigrate to Egypt. Initially, things are great. They have connections. Their brother is the viceroy. They get royal treatment. Just wait 20, 30 years. All of a sudden... Everything becomes from a voluntary labor, be turns into a forced labor, and then brutal, difficult slavery begins to the Jewish people. At the height of the Egyptian slavery, you'd been forgiven for believing that the Jewish experiment, that the Jewish people are kaput. There's not going to be anything left of them. No slave ever escaped Egypt. Nobody ever got out of the shackles of Pharaoh. There was no possible way anybody can imagine that the Jewish people would get out from where they were. In the words of Maimonides, he puts it this way. The concept of monotheism introduced by Abraham proceeded and gathered strength among the descendants of Jacob and those who rallied to them until there became a nation within the world that knew God. But this only lasted 
until the Jews extended until the Jews extended stay in Egypt. They, were re- they then regressed. They learned from the Egyptian ways and began worshipping idols as they did with the exception of the tribe of Levi who clung to the mitzvahs and the patriarchs never served false gods. The fundamental principle that Abraham planted came awfully close to being uprooted whereby the descendants of Jacob could have returned entirely to the world's erroneous perception of God and adopted their crooked ways. By all accounts, the way Maimonides puts it, you could have said, Jewish history, boom, ended. Abraham taught the world, Isaac taught the world, Jacob taught the world, wonderful! But now they just assimilated, they're like the Egyptians, all done. Judging by the laws of nature, there was no hope for the Jewish people. Judging by the laws of nature, the predator devours the prey. There, are no, there aren't just rules of nature, but whose rules of nature are they? Who made nature? God. That means within defining God as the creator, what did you now have? No longer. That whole definition, that whole understanding, if you were a Jew living in Egypt and I only knew God as the creator and he created nature, I'd say, what God? Why God? If God is only the creator, he created this mess. Look what we're in. How do you think we're feeling during this time of slavery, of total abandonment? The the concept of slavery that the Jewish people went through in Egypt. Every vestige of faith was absolutely crushed. Their foundations of what they believed in God was gone. When Moshe comes to the Jewish people, he says the Jewish people couldn't listen to him from a shortness of breath. They did not believe. How is it going to happen? A promise of redemption? The creator of nature? Impossible. What was this now ready for? Perfect. At this time, when the Jewish people were on their ultimate low, it was the perfect moment for the opening that we need for this big reveal. This utter demolition, this utter destruction of what Jacob or what Abraham explained the world as the creator has now been completely destroyed, abolished as we know it. The ayin, the nothingness, in order to create a new reality, was now ready to become. So if we look at what the patriarchs have accomplished, Abraham, did he bring it into the low realm? He sure did. Did he bring God's essence? No, because he only taught them about the Creator. Was it built by Abraham? Yes, but it wasn't the essence. Now, what happens? As we move to the next step, all of a sudden, the Egypt, the laws of nature, seemingly failed the Jewish people. But through the episodes of Exodus of Egypt, they now come to discover a God which is above nature. What was the first thing the way God introduced himself to Moses? He says, Your forefathers knew me in the name of Shindaladud, Shakai. But I introduced myself to you in the name Havaya. Your forefathers only knew me within the realms of nature. But I introduced myself to you in the realms of above and beyond nature. God was not just limited to being a creator of nature. God transcends nature. And therefore, the whole entire exodus of Egypt 
is orchestrated by the fact that God sends the ten plagues on the Egyptians and plagues that every single one of them showed how nature is non-existent. Water turning to blood, frogs coming out of the water, one to the many, lice, well, every single one of them. Things simply just didn't happen. God made them happen. He showed them nature is not in control. I am more than just a creator of nature. I'm a creator above and beyond nature. What happens next? The Jewish people come out of Egypt where no slave ever left. Again, disturbing the entire nation. Crossing through the Red Sea. The water going up. Dry land. The Egyptians drowning. And then what's the pinnacle of all of it? The revelation of Sinai. The revelation of Sinai. Powerful. God comes down onto the mountain. The lightning. The thunder. They see the thunder. They hear the lightning. They transcend a spiritual level. And God tells them himself, I am God who took you out of the land of Egypt. Again, they were a phenomenal experience, the ecstasy they experienced, above and beyond anything that you can call nature. They now experienced a God that is more than just a creator, right? Because no longer was he limited to nature. The Exodus experience all of a sudden ensured that over here, the Jewish people, they realized that God may be the architect of nature, but he definitely has power and transcends nature. And that's why in the first of the Ten Commandments, what's the first of the Ten Commandments? I am God who took you out of Egypt. What's the famous question we ask many times? Why doesn't God, if he has something better he can put on his resume? I created heaven and earth. Why does he say I took you out of Egypt? Over here, text number 10b, the biblical commentaries wonder why God emphasized I am God who extracted you from the land of Egypt instead of saying I am God who created heaven and earth. Surely... That demonstrates a far greater feat. The explanation is the Exodus demonstrates something far more than creation. The Exodus demonstrates that after creating heaven and earth with a defined set of rules of nature, God is nevertheless able to alter the natural order and conduct the universe as an entire supernatural matter. So the Exodus, the Sinai experience, the world was now introduced to what we would call the essence of God. Something that transcends nature a giant step forward in fulfilling the purpose of the creation of the universe, making this world a home for God. It would seem, boom, we had it. Exodus, Jews out of Egypt, God comes down to Mount Sinai. There you go, you got a home for God. Did it work? No. No, bottom line is we're still here, right? History continues to unfold with some more ups and downs, but why wasn't that time? Why wasn't it good enough? What was wrong with that moment? What was wrong with that purpose? Why, what was wrong at that time? The world was in a place, was in a good place. But what was the problem with it? Who took the Jews out of Egypt? Who revealed the essence of God? Moses. No. Not even Moses, God himself. Did we do anything? Nothing. It was not achieved by us. True, we're in a good place, but who's doing all the work? God. We're just following along for the ride. Remember we spoke about that God desires that the low world initiate it and make this world a place for itself. Not that God should impose himself on this world. We got to do the work. And if we got to do the work, in this case, we did not do the work. And therefore, so two out of the three boxes can check. 
Yes, it's the low world. Yes, it's the essence. But it was not initiated by us down here. It's not the type of home that God wants. Technically, it fails. Because such a home with God's essence, he could have had up there too. Superimposing himself in us? Big deal. God's to being this world didn't transform the world from a divinely place and a transformation can only happen bottom up. I can tell you what to do, but you won't become a different person. But if you decide to do it, you become a different person. If we decide to change this world into a holy place, we transform the world. But if God imposes, as long as the light is there, great. You turn off the light, it's gone. That's why Mount Sinai, interesting thing, I had this question many times, why isn't Mount Sinai considered today a holy place? Today you go in Israel, you can go in desert, Sinai Desert, I don't even, I think you know, yes, there used to be like a settlement there, Yamit was used to be on the Sinai Desert, and what they called Mount Sinai, but they were allowed to live there, it wasn't considered a holy place. The Jewish people traveled on, they didn't stay around Mount Sinai. Why? Because Mount Sinai was not transformed by the people, God came down and he left. He turned on the light and he turned off the light. Nothing changed. Temple Mount, on the other hand, as we're going to see, where the people made it a holy place, that's why it stays holy. Mount Sinai, as we said, and therefore, as you look in text number 11, the divine revelation at the giving of the Torah occurred in a top-down manner. Our lower reality was unprepared to receive this revelation. of the divine light and consequently was unable to internalize to a noticeable degree the light that it did receive. For this reason, the revelation of the divine light and the giving of the Torah was temporary and ended abruptly as described in the verse when that extended blast of the sounded with the ram's horn may ascend the mountain for the divinity dissipated entirely leaving the mountain unchanged. This is not true. This is not only true for the divine revelation and the home, but practically in everything in life. Real change only happens from within. You know the story of the kid that goes to the shop and he buys a candy bar and he hands the guy $5 and the guy gives him the candy bar. So the kid asks, can I have my change? He says, real change only happens from within. God doesn't want us just to conform and follow. He wants us to feel it. He wants us to change, not just to be blind servants and following. And therefore, so once again, the model of God's home, delivered to us by God himself, was still incomplete. And therefore, it needed to be demolished. And how was it demolished? Came the sin of the golden calf. The most catastrophic, unmitigated disaster that happened to the Jewish people. Nearly 40 days after the Jewish people heard on Mount Sinai, don't serve any other gods, what were they doing? Serving a golden calf. They went from a dramatic high to a dramatic low. Why was this? Why was it? Because again, did they change when they saw Sinai? No, they had a big light shining on them. And the moment the shining light moved away, they were back to their good old selves, how they were in Egypt, serving idols. They didn't change. And therefore, the only way that they can come to truly appreciating godliness in its essence was by destroying what they had. 
Only can they arrive to what can be. The Jewish people were handed a home by God in a silver platter. And what did they do? They threw it away. Only that they should be able to fight back for it and get it on their own. Let's see it in text number 12. Okay, yeah. The sin of the golden calf transpired due to a preceding supernal decision sin that through such an event, the people will achieve the superiority for tshuva. From this perspective, we see now that even though it seems like this golden calf was a disaster, it would have thrown back the Jews thousands of years, who knows? But in the end, what did it really do? It cleared the way for something greater. So if we look over here now, the Exodus in Sinai, was in the lowly realm, yes. Was it God's essence, yes. But was it built by us? Absolutely not. Which now brings us to our fourth and final spiritual milestone. In the aftermath of the sin of the golden calf, God destroy, they destroyed everything they've gotten from God. The Jewish people now have to start from scratch. The first thing they were told to do is to atone for the sin of the golden calf. The day Moses comes down from Mount Sinai when God says he forgave the Jewish people on the day of Yom Kippur. The day after Yom Kippur, God tells them to build a tabernacle. This tabernacle travels with the Jewish people during their time in the desert. Eventually, when they come into the land of Israel, they have this tabernacle for the next 400 years. Eventually, when King David, the tabernacle is destroyed and King David sets the foundation for the Holy Temple, the Jewish people have the Holy Temple in Jerusalem built by King Solomon for 410 years, exiled again for 70 years, and then have another second Holy Temple for 420 years. So you may say, unbelievable. These homes, these temples, should seemingly achieve everything we want. They're a home for God, created by the people, where the essence of God can be. With a greater intensity, after having turned away, because now they were able to build a place where you would see a divine reality. Text number 13. The divine presence was manifested within the tabernacle as a result of the Jewish people's tangible efforts. In accordance with the mandate, they should make a sanctuary for me. And because the divine presence manifest occurred through the human action, the sanctity became installed within the materiality of the tabernacle's components. Consequently, a physical tabernacle and its components gained a lasting sanctity. So what we have in here is they built it. What did they build? They took wood, they took metal, they took rocks, they took a mountain, they took physical, material, materialistic things, and they made them holy. They took the lowest realm, and they made it into a holy place, creating God's essence. We've achieved and accomplished our mission. So we think. But even with the Holy Temple and all its variations, from the tabernacle to the temple in Jerusalem, the first one to the second one, what was the key about building this temple? Did they do it on their own? Or was it mandated by God? It was mandated. So yes, they built it. Yes, they used materialistic forms. Yes, they've used, they may have used their own ideas, so to speak, and it provided a constant and immediate feedback from God. But at the same time, it was not completely their own initiative. And therefore, if we go into our graph here, we have with the temple, is it the lowest realm? Yes. Is it God's essence? Yes. But is it done by us? 
not completely. And therefore, we unfortunately have to come to the next stage of history. And the next stage of history is the Holy Temple is destroyed and the Jewish people are exiled for the last 2,000 years. And this came the greatest test of all. Would we take this exile and make this exile a holy space for God? Would we remain committed to God during the terrible atrocities and persecutions that the Jewish people have suffered through? Would we keep on doing good? And when could we, and when could we see light come even through our actions, even during times of trouble? It is precisely the exile. It is the darkness of the exile that these positive actions that are attributed to us in these last days of exile that when we decide that even during the darkest of times to observe and to follow and to stay committed that we invite God into our home what this means let's see it in the words in text number 14 the future revelation in the messianic era that is the goal of creation is generated by our actions and divine service during these times of exile for it is during exile to a far greater extent than during temple eras that our power of self-sacrifice shines. This is because it is specifically the spiritual darkness and divine concealment predominant during exile that mobilizes our potential for self-sacrifice. So for the past 1950 years to almost 2000 years, we've been devastatingly in a low place, physically and spiritually. We've conceived every possible disaster, decree, pogrom, you mention it, it happened to the Jews. Whether we're this side or that side, we've always been persecuted. But still, we responded in the most remarkable way. That despite everything, we're here. And despite everything, we still keep on doing and following and we're committed. And that's because we choose to do so purely from within. The self-sacrifice that it is in the time, we now fulfill the purpose of the creation. The vision that God has for this world is achieved precisely when there is no initiative to do it. During temple times, you had the holy temple. Of course you're going to serve God. But when there's nobody pushing you to do it, when there's no incentive to do it, on the contrary, it's difficult. This is what brings about Mashiach. This is what invites God into our home. This is what makes this world, the devastation, the darkness, is what makes this place holy, is what invites God and what makes it a home and fulfills the ultimate purpose, fashioning a home for God. But more precisely, if you take the exiles of the Jewish people, you can split them into two. And the two are as follows. Persecution, versus freedoms. What's the difference? There was a time when persecution, meaning a Jew is not allowed to observe anything of Judaism. They were not allowed to create a home for God, but they did it anyway. And then there are freedoms. We were given freedom to choose what to do and who to be. And within the freedom, we choose to celebrate and to bring God into our home. Today, thank God, we live in a free country. And we are able to choose the latter. And we don't have to worry about the former. But in which context do you think is a greater challenge to serve God? In the former or in the latter? Under persecution or under freedom? Yeah. Very good. He said freedom. 
Not only that. When somebody tells you not to do something, what's your first knee-jerk reaction? Because you're going to persecute the Jews, I'll teach you. In fact, it's interesting. When anti-Semitism is its strongest, Jews come out from old corners and they say, we're proud Jews. Unfortunately, we saw it last week. There's a concept which is called the Tsarist theory. Alan Dershowitz writes about it in his book. He's saying, when we spoke about this in our, when we talk about different uh, debates, there was the debate if you should follow Napoleon or the Tsar. Well, Napoleon would have been good for the Jews. Physically, it would have been bad spiritually. While the Tsar was good spiritually, but not physically, because they believed someone to say it was the Tsarist theory that when Jews are in pain, they all wake up. You know Why? Because it's a natural reaction that it's a response to force by saying that we realize that all of a sudden we're forced in that corner. If we don't do it, it's not going to happen. But when you have the freedom to do it, show up. I know there were Jews in Russia that when their lives were in danger to go to shul, they went to shul. They come to America, they all of a sudden not going to shul anymore. It was just a reality. The deepest challenge is when you have the freedom to do everything. And you live in a secular society, life is good, there's no worries in the world. And all of a sudden you say, one second, I need to have spirituality in my life. There's no pressure. Nobody's forcing you to go to shul. Nobody's saying you're not allowed to go. Nobody will know if you're Jewish or not. But God wants that during this freedom to choose because that's when the real choice is. It's not a real choice when you're being persecuted. It's a real choice when you have the freedom and the liberties to do it or not to do it. And that's when we make the choice and that's when we make the home for God. See it in text number 15. Like an olive is crushed so that its oil can provide illumination. The crushing that we experience in exile causes the revelation of our soul. Most essential light. However, there are two distinct degrees of crushing. We are crushed by external pressures such as decrees against the performance of Torah and mitzvahs. Or B, we experience freedom and prosperity in both material and spiritual sense. And nevertheless, we are crushed and broken internally by the fact that we remain in a state of spiritual exile. Of the two possible experiences, our brokenness over the fact that we are in exile produces the ultimate light. Today we live in a society, it's full of spirituality. With one click you can learn whatever you want. But at the same time, secularism, the antithesis of holiness, is prevalent because of the freedom. And therefore, when we choose, and when we're in exile, and we choose to produce light, that's the greatest level of bringing and making this world a home for God. So when we came into this class, thinking that our spiritual journey was comprised of ups and downs, steps forwards and step backwards, what we've learned to see is that every step that we take is really forward-facing, is really a step forward. Though not every moment in history was comfortable, and not every moment in history is enjoyable, but but the progress is the very fact that there's growth, change, and that always involves in something that was to be able to get to something that will be. The same is also true in our own personal lives. Every single one of us has our personal ups and downs. We have our moments of triumph and our moments of tragedy, our moments of glory and our moments of despair. And therefore, we believe that they think that maybe life is just a roller coaster. But what's true with the Jewish people is history 
is true within every single one of us. Nothing in our life happens for a mistake. It's not a roller coaster. It's all part of that groove of the key. In order for it to match the lock to unlock our potential, our growth, every single step, though it may look like a downward step, is there to help us and give us methods that we can return on a higher level and come back even greater, that our match should fit exactly into the key to open up. So what we conclude this lesson today is a simple message. God wants a real relationship with us. Not a relationship that He imposes. Not a relationship that comes from other impositions. But a relationship that we choose. A relationship that doesn't come out of external influences, positive or negative, but one that comes from within ourselves. It's not a love that we feel when all of a sudden we're on a vacation or when we're something based on some type of external benefit. It's something which is inside. It's essential. It's something there that we make that decision that we are choosing God just because. When we choose to do one more mitzvah, when we choose to do a mitzvah not because the rabbi is calling me or not because it makes me feel good, just because I want a relationship with God, want to make a home for God, that tips the scale and brings Moshiach. And in our own life, we have to remember that when we have that seemingly down, that groove in the key, or that troublesome, or that challenge in life, let us remember, just because it's there, just because it's difficult, doesn't mean it's not an up. We have to always remember this is just getting us to our location. It's matching the key so we can actually unlock our potential and ultimately the world's potential to bring Mashiach. Next week, we're going to be discussing the redemption will be ushered in through an agency of human being referred to as Mashiach. So we will explore this personality, his function, and how the redemption process will unfold. So join us, same time, same place. You can now join us in person. You're more than welcome. And feel free to get some soup as well. So looking forward to seeing you all next week, same time, same place. Anybody have any questions? You know, Rabbi, I still, yes. I, still I, I don't understand how the, not directly understand, I still don't understand how the story of Noah fits into this whole thing. Okay. Because it's a revelation of Hashem. I'm not talking about. I'm not talking about exactly what you spoke about. I just have never understood how Abraham is sitting there and the whole world doesn't know after the experience of Noah. I just don't understand. I just. I. I, I explained it before. I just. So it's a good question. How is it possible that after the flood, they still shouldn't believe? So don't forget, from Noah to Abraham was ten generations, and actually Noah and his family did believe in God, and Noah brought sacrifices thanking God because they were saved. But from Enosh, and even not too much later after Noah, during the time of Noah, there was the generation of the people who built the tower. That they felt, yes, God exists, but we can overcome God. And that was the difference between the people before Noah and after Noah. The people after Noah, even in the times of Abraham, when they served the idols, they believed that there is a God, but just God is too great to deal with us simple people. So therefore, he has idols... First, it was the stars, the galaxies, that they are in charge of certain things. 
So they had an idol for this and an idol for that and an idol for this. They said, God's up there in the heaven, but he led all the little stuff for the angels and for galaxies and for other gods to control the universe. So yes, they had a sensitivity. And that's why, in fact, based on what you're saying, the world was primed for Abraham's monotheism because they did believe essentially in God. In fact, the Rambam, we didn't have it over here, but Maimonides talks about how did Abraham discover it? He said, one second, it can't be the sun because the moon comes. It can't be the moon because the clouds come. It can't be the clouds because there's the mountains. It can't be the mountains because then there's the wind. And that's how he was about a process of elimination that he came to discover that there must be one creator and that he doesn't allow the little idols to take care of it. So, you, so yes, people did believe, but the belief was only a subconscious belief, not a reality. Any other questions? Huh? Because during what do you mean they were from? They lived there. Yeah, they're from Enish, Sheis, and from all those people. And they were from the people of Enish, yes, because they lived in Bavon. Huh? I'm not Enish. I'm saying from Sheim, Cham, and Yafas. Okay. Any other questions? We're good? Well, everybody, have a wonderful week. All the best, and we'll see you again yeah. next week. No. Forget next week when you learn the date, and I'll vote for the Muslim. Huh? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> push out. Instead, forget everything that you learned today, the <laughs> next week you'll, you'll learn the <laughs> Take care. <laughs> Try join us in person. What? It wasn't. It was just a recap at the end. Huh? What's? The what was the matter with the answer? The problem with the answer, in my opinion, is that the story is related in the Torah. Correct. So that means that there is some knowledge of the story of people and. I right, listen.